morning contact. Yeah, I shaved a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Billy. <laughs> when you, um, you may have heard that we're going to be talking about the death, burial, and resurrection again today. And I know it's not Easter, but we don't have to talk about that only at Easter, do we? <laughs> we, uh, in fact, we talk about that every week during the Lord's Supper. So this is another time that we're just going to continue that. And we're going to build on what uh, Jonathan and Ron have been speaking to us about for the last several weeks. And our primary text today will be from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. But before I get into the text, I'd like to introduce it by sharing a little of my personal history with this passage. So let's travel back a few decades to 1984. It was a great year. Yesterday, Chris didn't know what my sermon was going to be about. He came up to me and said, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, let's go back to the 1960s when I was born. And he knows me very well. He was off by a couple of decades, but he knows I'm always, he was very close. <laughs> he, he has heard me before, so <laughs> he knows what I'm going to be saying a lot of times before I say it. But I want us to go back to the year 1984 because this is where my personal history with this passage uh, comes into, into effect. Now, 1984 was a different world than what we're living in today. We didn't have the internet. We weren't carrying around cell phones. Uh, we were not streaming movies. Uh, we were watching music videos on MTV when they played music videos. Uh, we, we were going to the video store to watch, to, to rent a movie instead of having it stream on, on whatever streaming service you have. And the movies we were watching were movies like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Purple Rain, and Footloose. Yeah. The music we were listening to was Michael Jackson, Madonna, Prince, and Bruce Springsteen. And the world we were living in, half of it was, at least half of Europe was dominated by the Soviet Union. Apartheid was the law of the land in South Africa. And the former Vice President Walter Mondale was challenging the current President Ronald Reagan uh, for the presidency that year. And in my personal life, I was 16. I had uh, gotten my driver's license back in November the year before, and I had gotten my first job. I'd grown up attending Churches of Christ in Catoosa and Inola and Claremore, but I was not a Christian. I, I was not following Jesus at the time. As I said, I was a sophomore in high school, I, and because I had access to my dad's El Camino, I was able to go find a job. I, so I, after several months, it, was, it took me probably about three months of applying for jobs, I, I found one at Apple's, uh, a little fast food restaurant at 21st and Memorial. And 
I grew up in Catoosa, or a little bit east of Catoosa, so it was about a 30-minute drive for me to get to work uh, during that time, but that was the closest I could find a job. And I wasn't very good at it, of course, uh, to begin with, because I had no experience at all. But I kept going and eventually learned, learned the job. And then came May of that year, 1984. It was the Memorial Day weekend, and some of you may have been around at that time. You may remember the rainfall that night. I looked it up and we got 15 inches of rain in eight hours. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. Never have since then. I've seen it on TV when people have gone through hurricanes and the aftermath of hurricanes, but woke up the next morning and we lived in a trailer park, so in a mobile home, I don't know if any of you have lived in a mobile home or do currently, you hear every drop of rain and that was a lot of rain that night. I, and uh, so I didn't sleep all that much, but I got up that morning and, I, and uh, went to work early because I knew it was gonna take you a little while to get to work. Uh, I drove through about a foot of rainwater to get out of our, our trailer park and couldn't make it uh, the normal way to work. I had to detour several times because the floodwaters were over the bridges and the overpasses. Uh, the, the creek, Spunky Creek, was flooded. Uh, you had to really maneuver around East Tulsa to try to figure out how to get there. But I got there, and I was supposed to work, I think, six hours. I ended up working from 7 a.m. until 7 p.m., and the only other employee who showed up was my manager. So he was back there cooking and I was, I was up front running both the cash register and the drive-through. And while I didn't know my job all that well up to that point, I knew my job very well after that day. It was, it, I had never worked a 12-hour day until then. And my job was very secure at that point. My manager was not going to get rid of me uh, after I was the only one who showed up for him that day. But that flood took the lives of 14 people, and I didn't know it at the time. And I didn't know how that was going to affect me later. But sometime between 6 and 7 that evening, my friend Donnie called me at work. Um, and he said that our friend Sandra had died in the flood. And I told him, I'm not in a mood for a joke. But he wasn't joking. Sandra and I had known each other for a few years. We'd met back in middle school. We had a similar church background, and our parents were divorcing at roughly the same time. So we had a lot in common. We were able to talk to each other on a level that others weren't able to understand in many cases. And in the previous few months since I had my driver's license, a few times I 
took her home from school when she needed a ride home. And her loss really affected me. Not so much that day because I really didn't believe it and it took a while for me to believe what had happened. She had spent the weekend at her dad's house over here in West Tulsa. And I don't know exactly how it happened, but she got caught up in the floodwaters and, and didn't survive. She was only a few days away from her 16th birthday. And while I realized that Sandra may have been ready to face God, I had to ask myself, was I ready for death? And to be honest, I knew that I wasn't. I wasn't ready to face God. Christianity was more of a tradition for me. It was more of a, even a curiosity. But things changed at that point. I became very interested in what would I face when I faced God. So after school and before work, you would find me either, a lot of times, either at the library at, six, at 26th and Garnett, or at the B. Dalton bookstore or, or the Walden bookstore. Uh, we didn't have the internet, so I was looking through the religion sections of the bookstores and the library, trying to discover, trying to figure out my place in life, uh, who God was, and what I needed to be. So I was looking through the religion sections and the New Age sections, just anything that would point me in the direction I needed to go. I came across something that was really life-changing at the time. I discovered there were versions of the Bible out even then that were not the King James English. There were, there were English translations that I could understand. Uh, I, I, caught the, I, I caught on to the New International Version and started reading the Gospels. And it was fascinating to me what I did not understand before. And I was looking at books. I, I found one on the life of Christ by Fulton Sheen, who had been a bishop in the Catholic Church back in the 1950s. And he had written a book about the life of Christ. And in it, he said, he, he mentioned that the, this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, it was written 700 years before Christ was born. And I, I looked at other sources and I verified that it sure was. And I, I looked at Isaiah 53, and I, I almost couldn't believe what I was reading. This was so clearly Jesus that it made a great impression on me. It, it, uh, I, I began to take the Bible a lot more seriously. I saw the substance of, in what I was reading. It, it wasn't like the horoscope in the local newspaper, and it, it wasn't like... Uh, Oh, the psychics who would predict what the next year would become uh, or what would happen in the next year uh, when they were in the National Enquirer or some of those other tabloids at the time. This prophecy was written 700 years before Jesus was even born. And that's what I want to examine with you this morning. <clears throat> so if you have your Bible, and uh, I don't guess we have the 
we don't have it on the screen, do Oh, okay. Jonathan does have it on the screen. Okay. We're going to read Isaiah 53. We're going to read a few verses at a time, and we're going to see Jesus in these verses. You're going to see what I saw when I was reading these verses. <clears throat> Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now it says that Jesus grew up like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. I have a, uh, we, we have an oak tree in our front yard. Sometimes the acorns will drop and little, little trees will start to shoot up out of the ground. But it's very dry under that oak tree because that huge oak tree takes up a lot of water. They're in a very hostile environment if they're wanting to grow into a, a large tree like the tree that they came from. This is what Jesus grew up in. He grew up in an environment that was not the best of environments. When he was born, he was placed in a trough where they fed animals. And about a week after his birth, he was taken to the temple where parents were supposed to offer a lamb as a sacrifice. But the law allowed for those who were not wealthy enough to afford a lamb to offer a couple of turtle doves or, uh, or a couple of pigeons as a replacement. That's what Joseph and Mary offered. So we know that Jesus grew up poor. He was, his family was in the lowest income tax bracket. Um, and then shortly after that, King Herod became aware of his existence and start, uh, started slaughtering the children in the Bethlehem area. So his family had to flee as immigrants, as refugees to Egypt and spend time in Egypt in a place they didn't know, among people they didn't know. And when they finally did come back, it was still not a good place to be because Herod's son was ruling in Jerusalem, so they went up north to Nazareth. But Nazareth had a bad reputation. Uh, even one of his followers later on would say, can anything good come from Nazareth? So. He grew up, um, despite the poverty, despite the violence, and living in a place without a good reputation. But he grew up following the Lord, following his father. That's what the first couple of verses of Isaiah 53 allude to. And now, uh, now let's look at uh, the third verse. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. <clears throat> now in the hours leading up to his crucifixion, Jesus knew what it was like to be despised. He knew sorrow and grief and rejection. His enemies had entrapped him. One of his closest friends had betrayed him and others had abandoned him. 
The, cro uh, the crowd cried out for his death. The politicians used him. Witnesses slandered him. Soldiers mocked him and beat him and tortured him to death. A few women mourned for him, but they were powerless to intervene. And then in the next few verses through verse 8, starting in verse 4, <clears throat> Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. <clears throat> and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a, uh, as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished." We see that Jesus' suffering was for our benefit. He took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. <clears throat> While he suffered the piercing crown of thorns, the beating, the, the whipping, the, the weight of carrying his own cross, the mocking and the penetration of the nails through his hands and feet, he was suffering as an innocent man on behalf of the guilty. He was suffering on behalf of us. And people didn't understand. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. His punishment brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. He was dying with the noblest of motives. He was dying to save us. And we were the people who had gone astray. We were the people who had been arrogant and selfish and had turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. <clears throat> he was carrying the burden of our sins to his death. It says, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. And then... In verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus had died as a criminal among criminals. He was treated like a traitor, even though he was the most faithful man to ever live. He was treated like a murderer, although he was the most life-giving man to ever live. And then he was buried in the grave of a wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea. And then the last few verses of the chapter. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And through the Lord, oh, I'm sorry, though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. <clears throat> and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life 
and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils among the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Christ's death was not the end. After he has suffered, it says, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He was going to see his resurrection. He was going to return to life. And his resurrection would usher in a huge victory that he would share with everyone whose sins he carried. Now, all of that was written seven centuries before it happened. And you can see, you can see Jesus in this Old Testament passage almost as clearly as you could see him if he were standing here today. And I saw the significance of the passage, but what would I do with it? I knew who Jesus was, and I knew what he had done for me. I knew my sins and what I deserved, and I knew what Christ had gone through in my place. And I knew hope. It took several months, but I gave it a lot of thought. I counted the cost. And I counted the benefits of following Jesus. And I knew that the time for change had come. I had come to a, a point in my life where my faith had led me to want to change. Uh, this is the kind of faith that makes a difference. Back 500 years ago, there were reformers like John Calvin and Martin Luther who had a, a phrase that they would use. They said, we're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. And what they meant by that was saving faith is going to cause you to change. It's going to cause you to repent. It's going to cause you to see things differently and to act differently. And I knew that time had come for me. The uh, Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 uh, describes it in a different way. He describes when we're ready to give up our old lives of sin, when we're ready to die to them. He wrote, Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. <clears throat> Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and, we will never, and he will never die again. Death has no power. Death no longer has any power over him. So when we're ready for this change, we're ready to, to die to our old lives of sin and, and to bury them 
that happens, that changes us, that prompts us to, to bury our sins in the waters of baptism, imitating the, the death and the burial of Christ. But then when we come up, we come up to a new life and a new promise. Everything is, is new for us spiritually. We have a new freedom in God's forgiveness, a, a new purpose in following Jesus, and a new family in God's church. We have, a, we have a spiritual resurrection, and it's going to someday lead to a physical resurrection. We have the hope of life in the future as it was always meant to be. A life without the effects of sin. No more death, no more separation, no more hostility, no more suspicion, nothing but perfection, nothing but trust, nothing but love. There are many passages in the Bible that describe what we can look forward to. Uh, Ron brought up 1 Corinthians 15 last week where it talks about our resurrection bodies. Romans 8 talks about uh, creation, uh, not mourning, but uh, groaning to be renewed. The, The end of the book of Revelation talks about the new heavens and the new earth when Christ returns. But my favorite verse... Just a single verse is 2 Peter 3.13, where it says, But in, in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth, where righteousness is at home. This verse describes what will happen when Christ returns to usher in the final age. The old heavens and earth that we're so familiar with will be relieved of their suffering as new creation is renewed. Our relationships with God and each other will be set right forever. That's what righteousness means. We're going to be set right with God and with each other. Righteousness will be at home. Everything from our physical to our emotional to our relational to our spiritual existence will be made right. In the last couple of years, you may have heard a song on the radio by Cochran and Company. They sing, one day, there'll be no more waiting left for our souls. One day, there'll be no more children longing for home. One day, when the kingdom comes right here where we stand, we will see the promised land. One day, there'll be no more anger left in our eyes. One day, the color of our skin won't cause a divide. One day, we'll be a family standing hand in hand, and we will see the promised land. We will see the promised land. One day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. One day, when our tired and weary bones will find their rest. One day, when the power of evil is brought to an end, we will see the promised land. We will see the promised land. This is our hope. This keeps us going. And it's all because of Jesus' resurrection. Now, I don't know where you are in your life right now. You may be like me, 
where coming to church is more of a tradition, maybe, maybe a curiosity. If so, I hope what I've said will prompt you to look at the 53rd chapter of Isaiah and then read the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Compare what you see in those passages. See if there's substance to what I've said, to what has been written. If you've already been thinking about that and you would like to if you would like to change, we would like to encourage you to do that. And if you've been discouraged, if you had forgotten what our ultimate hope is, I want you to remember. Remember what we're looking forward to. Remember the price that has been paid for that. And if, if you have any need, if you want to come forward uh, during uh, our last song or two or however many Jonathan has left, uh, come on forward and, and Ron and others will be up here to help you out.